This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. Heroin use and the misuse of prescription drugs is one of the biggest challenges that we face public health-wise and public safety-wise. It was a drug of choice in the 70s, back again. The face of opiate and heroin addiction is not really what we think it is anymore. An opiate addict can look like anyone, can be anyone. And the impact is devastating. And I said, no, that's impossible. No, he's not. He's not dead. Heroin in the heartland, our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism. Online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. According to statistics provided by the Office of the United States Attorney, 44 people in this country die every day from overdose of prescription painkillers. Each year, the number of deaths from overdoses exceed motor vehicle or firearms deaths. Annually, more than 47,000 people die in this country from drug overdoses. More than half of that number from prescription painkillers and heroin. The most recent national survey on drug use and health estimates that nearly a million Americans reported using heroin in calendar year 2014. That's a 35% increase from the previous year. Heroin use and the misuse of prescription drugs is one of the biggest challenges that we face public health-wise and public safety-wise. Kevin Tekow is U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Iowa. It doesn't matter where you live, how big a house you have, how fat your wallet is. Uh, these are issues that really cut across our community um, and really across the United States. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Iowa conducted a series of town hall meetings late this spring throughout eastern Iowa. It included the launch of a new community outreach initiative by the Eastern Iowa Heroin Initiative. It's called CRUSH, Community Resources United to Stop Heroin. It's designed to involve schools, law enforcement, treatment providers, community leaders, and healthcare organizations to address what is a growing epidemic of heroin use. CRUSH was recently initiated in Lynn, Dubuque, and Clinton counties. At a town hall in Waterloo on June 8th, the goal was to expand to Blackhawk County as well. We, we can't arrest our way out of this problem, but believe me, we're going to stay vigilant and prosecute those that deal in heroin and uh, sell off-market prescription drugs. Uh, we've had some very successful prosecutions uh, in the near term, and we have a number of cases that are pending now. My name is Al Fear. I'm currently a police officer in Cedar Rapids. I've been in law enforcement for 21 years. I'm currently assigned to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Northern District of Iowa, and the Eastern Iowa Heroin Initiative. The Heroin Initiative was created in response to all the overdoses that we've been having in Eastern Iowa. By working the street, I've been to a lot of overdoses of heroin and opioids, and uh, I've seen this work firsthand. And I have to tell you, that's an amazing drug. When you are um, thrust into a situation where you come across a, a somebody who is basically lifeless, they're turning purple and not breathing anymore because of the heroin that they use. And then for a paramedic or a first responder to give them Narcan, and a minute later they're standing up and talking to you. It's amazing. I'm joined now by reporter Lee Hermiston of the Gazette in Cedar Rapids. 
He and other reporters have submitted stories that we've been reading this spring and early summer about heroin and opioid misuse. Lee, what surprised you and your colleagues as reporters in covering this story? I think, you know, for us, what was so surprising and ultimately what we tried to uh, show in the series is that, you know, the, the face of opiate and heroin addiction is not really what we think it is anymore. We, you know, picture this, uh, you know, junkie with a, with a needle in his arm after years of substance abuse. And what we're really finding is an opiate addict can look like anyone, can be anyone. Uh, They blend in. It's not easy to spot something like that because this problem is so pervasive and cuts across uh, seemingly every demographic. Now, heroin was, in essence, the drug of choice 30, 40 years ago. What led to its resurgence now and its resurgence here in the Midwest? Uh, Basically, you can point to uh, prescription uh, opiate painkillers. What we're finding is that um, they're starting with prescription opiate painkillers. Many of these folks had the uh, painkillers prescribed to them legally after uh, having their wisdom teeth removed or suffering from some other uh, medical condition, and they end up getting addicted to the painkillers. The problem is uh, the painkillers eventually are no longer accessible because the doctor says you don't need them anymore, or in the case of the addicts that were already obtaining them illegally, the pills themselves were altered so that they couldn't be crushed and and snorted, and they had to move to something else, and that something else happens to be heroin. So I guess in an odd sort of way for the non-stereotypical addict, these legal drugs became a gateway to more serious substances. Absolutely. These are uh, people that uh, they were kids when they started, teenagers, that... um, no, they weren't doing these other drugs. They weren't engaging in that sort of behavior that might lead down that road. They were trying to uh, alleviate their pain, and they simply became addicted to the medicine that was uh, prescribed to them. It could happen to anyone, which makes this uh, really an epidemic so scary. So what's the answer? Obviously, this is a multifaceted problem that requires a multifaceted approach to resolve, but what's the answer generally? Uh, The answer, and uh, it's something that we're exploring in the fourth part of the series that runs this Sunday, is uh, really a multifaceted approach. Of course, you have law enforcement going after heroin dealers, but they're finding that you take down one dealer, someone in that organization will eventually step up and fill that role. So what they're really trying to do is eliminate the demand for it by trying to not create new addicts. They're doing that through uh, public awareness campaigns. They are uh, trying to uh, make it harder to get these pills by doing uh, drug drop boxes 
in uh, police departments and uh, eventually every county in Iowa um, by making it easier for folks like you and I to dispose of our unwanted prescription drugs so that someone can't have access to those and abuse them. Uh, so that's really where, where the efforts are, just trying to not create new addicts by making it harder to get those pills when they're not being prescribed to them. I know I, simply as a consumer of news, was surprised to hear that this was a problem. What's the most interesting response you've gotten from those who have read your reporting? Are they just as surprised, perhaps, as I am? Yeah, I think that, you know, again, going back to my earlier point is an opiate addict can blend in. We are finding that these uh, folks who are not only using opiates but are uh, suffering from overdoses are mothers, fathers, neighbors, they're uh, medical professionals, they are, you know, virtually anyone that you could cross paths with in the grocery store could be struggling with that addiction. It's that pervasive and it's that easy to mask. Lee Hermiston is a reporter for the Gazette based in Cedar Rapids. You can read their series of stories on this topic online at thegazette.com. Coming up, we'll hear about the price of addiction. That's next as the Iowa Watch Connection continues. The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. At the town hall meeting held in Waterloo on June 8th, organized by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Iowa, a number of individuals spoke, but none had as compelling a personal story as Lori Peter of Cascade. Her son Kelly was a heroin addict. She showed the audience a photo of Kelly before addiction. Then, holding up an urn containing his cremains, she showed the result of addiction. We bring you now some of the comments she made at the public town hall meeting, and we note that understandably, she is rather emotional as she shares in full detail the story. Growing up, Kelly was an extremely happy child. He had a fantastic um, childhood. He was funny, laughing. He was a self-taught musician. He played guitar, drums, um, piano, probably things I don't even know about. He was just a pleasure to be around, and that carried over into his adulthood. I believe I received more hugs and kisses and I I love yous from him than anyone else on this earth. And if you knew Kelly and didn't receive a hug and a big kiss, he probably didn't like you. At 18 is when it really started with me. Kelly was hospitalized. He had pancreatitis. He was the one who had to tell me why he had pancreatitis. I had no idea. I'd never dreamed it would be drugs. He'd been smoking crack cocaine. So of course, the hospital staff came to me and 
talked to me about um, some kind of treatment. But Kelly and I talked it over and my son didn't need treatment. It scared him and he wouldn't ever touch that again. Little did I know that's when his addiction was already in full swing. And that's when my addiction started to saving my son. His opiate abuse started um, by him and his friends taking prescription pills out of medicine cabinets, and it was probably mine. Soon, my spoons started disappearing. There were Q-tips all over his bedroom. He was losing weight, his eyes were sunken in, his voice was really raspy all the time. In the middle of a normal conversation, he would be nodding off and just tell me he was just really tired. He was always sick, he would lay in bed for days, he would sweat profusely and moan. He would beg for the pain to stop. I rode that roller coaster for a couple of years, really not knowing what to do. We couldn't really do this anymore. It was affecting everyone. So I found Mecca in Iowa City. He went away for 28 days. He kind of became a star there. He was making everyone laugh. He was support for them. When he left there after 20, 28 days, he did get to stay 28 days. A lot of the people came to me and told me what a pleasure he was and what an inspiration he was, and they actually sought him out for encouragement while he was there. During the initial intake when we arrived there, he really didn't want my mother and I to sit on it, in on it, but we did. And I heard horror stories of him overdosing and his friends um, doing mouth-to-mouth -mouth and throwing him in a tub of ice. No one ever called 911. They were too afraid. So while he was at Mecca, we all went and visited him every week. We'd play games, and Kelly slowly returned. My funny, happy kid was back. I thought was, this was a miracle. So he came back home, was doing pretty darn good. But the dealers started texting and calling, and he, we had moved out of town. We lived in Dubuque, and we moved out of town to a smaller town to hopefully avoid this. Well, any trip to Dubuque, Kelly got heroin. He really was determined to not use heroin. So then he turned to alcohol. And he went to his psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist gave him benzodiazepines. So now he had a legal addiction. With this combination, he rolled a car, he got an OWI, amongst, I can't even tell you how many other charges. I couldn't keep anything in the house, not even a bottle of cough syrup, because he would drink the entire thing to get high. One afternoon I was at work and I got a call that Kelly was in the ER. He had, um, while he was supposed to be watching his little sister at home, he took some benzos, got on his bicycle and went to the neighbor's shed, um, his shop, drank an entire bottle of whiskey and all the beer he could find. And they had found him all bloody in the gravel, uh, didn't even know his own name. So I went to the ER and found him tied down to the gurney, and he couldn't even speak, he just gurgled. So my mom and I instantly left, went down to the courthouse, and had him committed. They kept him for 21 days. They said that he was good to go home. 21 days is enough, he was great, he was ready to go. They just recommended that he go to uh, outpatient treatment in Dubuque called Turning Point, which he did and the first day he showed up drunk. But they gave him another chance because that's what they do. And he did successfully complete that and he was a star there again playing his guitar and everything. He moved 
out of my house and started living with his girlfriend, which I thought was great, but in a way it was even more hell. It was so much easier having him there, being able to check if he was breathing. When he was away, every phone call, I was scared to death to answer it. But they were determined to kick it. They started working. They were on their own. But there was always that urge and that trigger for him to use. He had a court-ordered class that he had to attend every Friday. And when he went there, the dealers would be waiting outside of the class. Sometimes he was strong enough, and sometimes he wasn't. And then last spring, I received a call from his girlfriend. She woke up in the middle of the night, had an uneasy feeling, went into the living room, and there was Kelly Purple. She started mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, called 911, and they administered Narcan and saved him. He had one last class. It was August 28, 2015. One last class in Dubuque. I drove him to Dubuque that morning on my way to work, and we talked and we talked. And I went to drop him off, and he said, thank you. I love you, Mom. And that's the last time I saw him. After the class, apparently the dealers were there again. I don't know if he sought it out or they went after him, but he got it again. He carried it with him all day long. He met with an old friend. He was playing guitars in the pawn shops. He met his little brother that afternoon. He met my mom that afternoon, was going to get us a new cell phone. And then I was told he was going to spend the night at his dad's, which I was also completely okay with because they were going to be celebrating his dad's birthday that weekend going to um, different bands. And the next morning at 5.30, is when his dad called me and said that Kelly's purple, he's dead. And I said, no, that's impossible. No, he's not. Start breathing on him. Give him Narcan. He's not dead. And he said, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's dead. I waited and waited for them to call me back to tell me that when the EMTs got there that they brought him back, but I didn't get that call. He would have done anything to get the help that he needed, but it was never long enough. All these things, all these thoughts go through your head. Like, was I a bad mother? Did I love him too much? Did I not love him enough? It's happening to everybody. Like he said, the police officers, doctors, jocks, Losers, nerds, I mean, it happens to everybody. It can happen to absolutely anyone. Prince, it is indiscriminate. Her heroin really does not care. The truth is, I want him back. I would rather live the roller coaster and the chaotic life of loving an addict than live this hell. Now it's my anger that's my strength. My journey is now to honor my son and to fight against the system that's broken, to prevent another mother's heart heartbreak. Lori Peter of Cascade, who spoke at a town hall meeting in Waterloo on June 8th, telling the story of her son Kelly, who died as a result of his addiction last year. That town hall again was organized by the Office of the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Iowa. It was one of a series of town halls, including ones held in Cedar Rapids and Dubuque,
to fight the threat. The programs were organized with the assistance of the Eastern Iowa Heroin Initiative, which recently held meetings in the Quad Cities, sponsored by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Iowa. You can learn more by going to facebook.com slash Eastern Iowa Heroin Initiative. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. A reminder of a special event coming up later this month on Thursday, September 29. It's our fourth annual Celebrating a Free Press and Open Government Banquet, this year noting the 40-year anniversary of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council. White House advisor Corey Zarek, a University of Iowa graduate, will be the guest speaker. More information about the full day of activities and the evening banquet can be found online at iowawatch.org. And that's also how you can connect with us anytime. Click on the Iowa Watch Connection tab at the top of the page to listen to all or part of this program again, or a list of stations that carry the program, and more iowawatch.org. Follow us on Twitter at Iowa Watch and be sure to use the hashtag IAWatchConnection when commenting about the program. We're on Facebook too, facebook.com slash iowawatch. And you can let us know your thoughts about this program or suggest ideas for future programs by email. The address is radio at iowawatch.org. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org.